This is the Epilogue Audio Experience. Hello everyone, welcome to Where East Meets West, a special collaboration between Epilogue and America Meditating Radio. I'm your host, Sister Jenna, and it's my personal passion to continue to engage in conversations between individuals from especially India and to see what qualities, values, expertise that they bring to the West, but also how the West has also encouraged India to be what it is today and maybe to bring more light to it as well. I'm curious to see how these two worlds can come together to make the world a better place. My special guest today is Anjana Natwani, and we're going to be diving into some of the incredible work that Anjana has been doing. Let me tell you a little bit about who she is. Very often described by her peers as a pioneer and someone who has the courage and determination to follow her convictions. Anjana Natwani has held several senior leadership roles and managed large business units. Her work has received global recognition. She is also the recipient of several awards, most recent the Global Diversity Leadership Award, which was presented to her in 2017. But as a business and health psychologist, she's passionate that organizations create environments where people can thrive and optimize their potential. I love that. She's currently the director of Athena Learning Academy and a visiting lecturer at Hertfordshire Business School. As a two-time survivor of cancer, Angina is passionate about well-being and works as a coach and a yoga therapist with cancer patients and thrivers. She has also authored many publications and writes regularly for Yes to Life, Thrive Global and India Inc. She recently qualified in the Ayurveda and Mindfulness and is a member of the Complementary Medical Association. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Anjana Natwani to Where East Meets West. Anjana, I can't wait to get into prying into your beautiful mind and telling us about who and what you've been up to. Welcome. Thank you, Sister Jenna. So tell us a little bit about the Athena Learning Academy. What was the vision and what's the vision and the mission of it? Yeah, Athena, the Learning Academy pieces, because I'm a lifelong learner and I'm passionate that people learn at every phase of their life. So hence the Learning Academy. Athena, I think uh, it sounds quite similar to Anjana and a lot of people have been calling me wise. So I thought Athena, you know, the Greek goddess of wisdom. And uh, so, yes, I've uh, over the past 10 years, I've taken several journeys with the company. It's not so much the name now, so I'm at another interlude now. I just, uh, I just updated my LinkedIn. I was on a call yesterday, and I'll talk about it. Participating in a happy thorn, so it's a 24-hour journey, uh, which we're all planning with Happy Jude, who are based out of India. And we came up with a term called coachpreneur, you know. <laughs> um, so... Very much the vision is what you said, you know, optimizing people's potential in whatever aspect of their life. They may be homemakers, they may be career people, they may be young people in schools or in colleges, 
Um, you know, something comes to mind is my window cleaner at home who has never stopped learning. I've known him for two years and every month he comes, you know, he's either reading a new book, he's taken on a new hobby. Um, you know, that uh, passion okay. for living. I love people like that. Um, yeah. They're very rare. Yeah. But they are out there and you really want to be friends with folks like that because, you know, they're always open to something new and developing themselves. I call them the givers to society, not the takers of a society. So spirituality has been a really big thing for you. Um, would you say that you're, you know, you were just wired that way or has an event taken place in your life like a lot of people have often told me did something happen to you that you became a Brahma Kumari and I'm like no nothing happened to me <laughs> why I became a Brahma Kumari I'm actually just awakened and I'm just making effort to stay awake what was the reason behind your spirituality or your interest in spirituality yeah my mother said I was born this way in many ways, uh, but my mother actually uh, was very spiritually inclined and so I was brought up with spiritual values. And my journey has, I am so grateful to be so blessed uh, with having connects with, uh, you know, spiritual masters, people like yourself, uh, people who are, awakened, enlightened, who just want better lives for themselves and better lives for humanity at large. So as a one-year-old, I came across my guru, Swami Satyamitranandji. He's got a founder of Bharat Mata Temple and he's very international. He's traveled the world. He's no more in his body. So he... He was the instigator, but then at some point he said, I don't think I'm enough for you. And when I was 14, a school friend, um, you know, introduced me to the activities of the local Satya Sai Center. And so I got into a lot of youth work and working with children. And that's when I came across um, Brahma Kumaris. Uh, you know, a friend of mine used to send the children to the Sunday classes I used to take. And the classes were all about, um, you know, the East meets, meets West, what you're talking about, you know, young people growing up with value, differing value systems and how to reconcile them. And so a very good friend of mine, and I used to go and babysit for her because she was a nurse and, uh, you know, she had night duties. So as a 16-year-old, I, I used to, and that's how I got into the Brahmakumari meditation system. And yeah, then as life took me in different directions to university, to working in London, um, I just got into meditations and you know, studying the Bhagavad Gita, um, yeah, studying Sikhism because I had a lot of Sikh friends. So I think, in a way, spirituality found me, Sister Jenna. Often that happens, though, when it's like you're in your own head doing what you think is your own way, and then 
just as you're going through life, different scenes and different people show up and you don't even know it, but it's leading you to looking at the world from a much larger perspective. I always feel like when somebody comes in, yeah, when someone comes into their spirituality, the world just opens up to them. They're just not in a very narrow point of view. They're not very limited. They just see it, things from a vast perspective. Um, what if somebody were to actually ask you what is mindfulness? Because a lot of people sometimes confuse mindfulness to, I don't know, meditation. It could be. Um, it's definitely not another category of a religion anymore. It's become so mainstream. But what are your thoughts about it? Yeah, mindfulness um, has been a journey for me. And um, I was very much influenced by the work of Dr. Wayne Dyer during my first cancer. And that's when I came across uh, John Kabat-Zinn, you know, who sort of uh, really put mindfulness on the map globally. So during this lockdown, I decided to study it, you know, through uh, both academically and through Happitude. So I'm going to mention him, uh, Praveen Chaturvedi, who is, uh, he calls himself my fellow practitioner, but he actually helped me to see mindfulness as an active state of being really. And so mindfulness is all about awareness all about appreciation, about acknowledgement. And it's all about, as all popular people say, you know, take Naha as present moment focus. So as a cancer thriver or whatever label one gives, um, I think mindfulness gave me that awareness of being in tune with my own body, being in tune with my own mind and it's really helped so even now I find it's helped me to change my habits towards feeling good towards feeling healthy you know towards feeling zest for life you know getting that wake up feeling you know like you're here to live you're not here to just pass through life as if it wasn't of any great significance. You know, you're a two-time cancer thriver, and do you recall the first time it was a diagnosis? And just in essence, do you remember the state of mind you were in, and what was different the second time around? And, and how has all of that changed you? Yeah, the first time, I remember going to my GP and, you know, it was uterine cancer and I was in my early 40s. And and it, it was just, this is where you say, you know, spirituality just takes over. And I just went through that process. It's like I would go to the consultant on my own. And so it gave me confidence. Second time round, I was more serious. And my mum was that much older and... Um, and I looked ill and the impact on the family, but yet there was that knowing that I'll be fine. And, you know, the preparation one does, and I was 
both times I was really lucky to have consultants who said, it's our job to make you well. Do you want to get well? So during the second cancer, I'd meditated a lot. And, um, you know, I believe in the power of Hanuman Jalisa. It gives me a lot of strength. Mine too. And so Mr. Miller, my consultant, after the, the it was a colon cancer, after they, uh, you know, after I came around two days later, he said, do you know you kept chanting that whilst uh, we put you out for 10 minutes? And, you know, when people tell you these things who don't know much about you, I, I just think, you know, there are, People call it higher powers or mystical beings, but we are looked after. We're looked after. And it reminded me of Stephen Hawking, who used to be my client. And during my first cancer, he was actually my client then. And, uh, you know, I, was, I had to tell him that I'm going to be off for a while. And, you know, he, he shared something with me. He said, you know, I write about the black hole and, and I'm a scientist. And you know, there's some things in life nobody can explain. <laughs> you just got to believe them, just got to believe it. And so the cancer journeys, if you like, have deepened that faith. It's interesting how trauma or something tragic has this beautiful gift of waking us up and redirecting us in another direction. Have you noticed? It's like, you know, we think we're in charge, everything is going great, or, you know, we have a little bit of a complaint here or there. But then something like cancer, or the loss of a loved one, or the loss of finance, or whatever, it just hits a place in the consciousness and just says, you need to look over here. You need mm -hmm. to see this. I've been trying to show you for a long time, but you're not seeing it. Please see it. And, and something changes. Um, something I learned from Daddy Janky, who's my spiritual mentor. Um, there are two ways you learn, either through love or through tragedy. And that has stayed so deep in me. And I, I found an observing, like I've been observing myself. Please, I talk to God and says, I just want to learn through love. I don't want things to be hard, you know, for me to have to figure out who I really am. I just want to learn through love, you know. And so it's interesting, as Stephen Hawkins told you, that if everything is so mysterious. There are certain things you just can't discern and you can't decode it. And that's fine. I think that's fine. Let's leave a few, a few mysteries to God knows, so that at least he left some work to do, right? So, so as we look at an article that you wrote in Thrive Global, um, it was on a research of 500 conversations you had with senior leaders. You had talked about this thing of nine pathways, right? That could help towards their spiritual well-being. Do you think it would be possible for you to share a few of those or actually what came out of that research? It's interesting because I'm a business psychologist. So, you know, when you're working with leaders, you talk business and they look at you and they think, oh, there's something mysterious about you. Can we talk about life? And I think you've caught me on the spot a little bit. So let me just. So one of the pathways I remember from the research coming up was about, you know, that inner being and the connect with mindfulness, for me, 
is we're always so influenced by what's going on outside that in that we lose what we are thinking, what we are feeling, what our values are. You know, we get into that reaction mode or resistance mode. And um, so, and particularly the past 18 months, the language of resilience comes into uh, conversations a lot, doesn't it? And what does resilience mean? And I think resilience means we have that repertoire of of responses, you know, I'm not going to call it emotions, feelings. We have that repertoire in our being, you know, so we can use our energies wisely. And that's coming up a lot in my work with leaders. And I'm about to start on, uh, you know, this word happiness. What? How do people actually talk about happiness? Is it about the next new car or is it about the next new laptop? Is it, I was talking to my neighbor and she was saying, you know, they're buying a new home. She said, I have no reason to buy a new home, but I'm just buying it. Um, you know, and she'll say, you know, three months down the line, I know that the new home will be a home. <laughs> it's not a new home. So, my research very much focused on that, really. You know, how do you, because people tend to think contentment is complacency. But I don't think it is. You know, contentment means we come from a position of gratitude. We come from a position of grace. Uh, we come from a position of acceptance. And I think the mindfulness journey also, you know, if... Um, from the 500 leaders, 350 of them had some kind of a medical condition. And very often it's why me, you're fighting. But once we accept, uh, so even now I did quite a lot of work with corona patients last year and some of them were very chronically ill. But once that acceptance came, it was quite easy to move on. Um, to looking at what's the best course of treatment, what alternative therapies do I need to do? Do I need to meditate more? Uh, so the research actually opened doors for people, you know, it got them thinking. And it was very, it wasn't, uh, I, I was just asking them three questions. How do you know when you're content? What is it like to be in a constant state of flux, you know, uh, in the sense you're running and running and running? Uh, you know, I got them to jot that down over a period of two weeks and they saw the patterns really and yeah. how disturbing it was. And the third thing really was what is the one thing you can change and can you implement that for 21 days? And to do it? it was amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, people either stopped eating something, drinking less coffee, or just turning their cell phone off for one hour at night. Anything, they, they chose it. And it was quite significant. So sometimes we just have to create comfort levels around self-inquiry. 
Yes, I don't think uh, there is a magic pill, is that Sister Jenna? Otherwise, we would all be running to the pharmacy and saying, oh, why, you know, take my to cancer with, away. It has I don't to, know that surgery. And, you know, it has to do with that magic thought, you know, is the yeah. pill. If we can just grab onto that very strong thought to transform the way we see the world. It'll be amazing. You know, you've got so much experience in diversity and inclusion, and we're witnessing in the world a sort of a dismantling of maybe systems that have supported um, separation and racism. What do you think is needed for us now in this particular time, in this generation, to bring us back together, to create more inclusivity, and to somehow just allow people to be themselves in which they're just different? What do you think would be, what do you think is a tool or a method or a solution? Uh, you know, I was talking to a friend at the weekend and I just sort of said, spent so many years uh, supporting writing legislation and yet we hear what we hear uh, and this day and age. And we recently had a report here from, uh, you know, the Prime Minister's office that said, uh, you know, systemic racism is a myth or something like that. And you think, no. You know, over the past year, I've sort of helped. So there's an organization, they were called the Center for Talent Innovation, now called based out of New York. And um, the word is belongingness. And I, based in Washington, D.C., you may know my friend Howard Ross. And... I think belongingness is a human touch. So for me, and I was just thinking about it this morning, I want to think the human organization comes to mind, Sister Jenna, you know, uh, beyond this visible exterior, what is within us is very similar in many ways. By within us, I mean, you know, we all want peace. We all want compassion. Um, we all want the best for our families. We all want a good standard of living, you know. Uh, we all want to feel healthy. So there is more that unites us than there is diverse about us. And I don't think changing attitudes, changing attitudes is a temporary thing. What we need to change is, oh, it's transformation actually is how people feel about humanity at large, you know. And so that's where a Malala or um, the young lady who's talking about the climate change, I think they are our stalwarts really, you know, that they're, they're getting us to think that there is, a bigger issue here and why we don't need another George Floyd scenario. But it's everywhere it just seems to have escalated. You know, you hear about the spa incident with the Asian ladies and you think, what is making people behave like this? And this is where I think mindfulness, meditations, they have to be an essential part of um, 
And I really think it's important for it to become more mainstream now. And mm-hmm. like, not like a fad, but as a solution. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, but, but I've watched like mainstream media or the news. If they do that, then they're going to lose people <laughs> because they've addicted people to, you know, all the Jamela and all the Maya and all the body conscious vibrations that come. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how do we impact them? And I think maybe until they get personally touched by some of these events that maybe they're supporting and taking care of, there might be a turnaround. It has to sometimes be from the top. It has to be from the top, but we can't wait for them. We still have to start the process on our own. And I do believe that that's definitely taking place. We're coming to a close, and I don't want to end without talking about the two book proposals that you're up to. And I wanted the audience to actually get an idea of them and what they entail. And when are they coming out? Yeah, one is on Maitri Bama, you know, uh, Maitri meaning uh, female, feminine, motherly. Uh, and I was inspired by Vandana Shiva, you know, the activist in India on the environment and organic. And so I'm looking at how women have influenced. So women as influencers is a big um, passion of mine. You know, I think you're talking about women as this helpless being or somebody who's always attacked or so I just want to talk about because there are many women who influence right and uh, so that's one and the second one is um, on based on my cancer journeys and you know um, I've done quite a lot of work with Robert Holden uh, you know on Life Loves Me uh, Louise Hay has been my inspiration so it's um Creating the life you want. Beautiful. And Jenna, what would you say is your biggest realization of this particular time in your life? My biggest realization is focus on a life that is, you know, that that feels as though it's blossoming every day, like a fresh flower blossoms. And, you know, life is a gift, really. And uh, that's the essence of my book. So, you know, and no one's get, you know, you'll talk to every, most people have had uh, some kind of a thing which they'll call trauma. But, you know, my realization is it's how much value we put on something that makes it either a big trauma, a small trauma, or a huge amount of joy, you know, like an inflated balloon and then you poke it and it just goes boom. So it's all about, uh, you know, a perspective which is, yeah, do the best you can and then move on, you know. Uh, it's, It's a steady journey of just moving on and I... Yeah, so I've come to a point where, you know, the, the big things or the big traumas or the big joys and the realization is that was then. So what is now, you know, and just, yeah, so whatever comes, comes really. That doesn't mean I don't plan or anything, but, you know, not get overtly disturbed or overtly excited 
like in this like sort of a neutral state of being present and um, yeah. trusting and allowing that your destiny is already preordained so you're not going to take anything that's going on with you or through you personally but also the fact that you've also um, your mother has transitioned sometimes that also leaves a hole and it kind of invites you to start to also think a little bit about just the way you're living and remembering the gifts that were imparted on you too so there's a lot going on for so many of us and it's all good yeah you know i'm just saying i just want to be because i got calls now and you know you can go traveling when the world when it opens up or you can do this and do you still need that big four bedroom house and so i'm thinking i'm not even thinking that you know i and you know i, I gave a i wasn't going to speak at my mom's funeral uh, but you know the priest said oh please say a few words and i woke up i went to the podium and i just smiled and everybody was saying you're smiling at a funeral and so so i said i was celebrating being my mother's child you know and now I'm celebrating her life i mean if you look at my mom's life but people think gosh she went through a lot but she never complained really you know she just took it in a stride um so yeah and recently i did a workshop with people and then i followed up for 7 days and all i said was count the number of smiles and people saying well pandemic you know we hear of people of dying how can you smile but they were smiling and the feedback i got was it just it's irrelevant to the context a smile is a smile you know and it somehow creates an equilibrium because you know you just release everything don't you from the face and it up as a lot as smile says a lot <laughs> look at the mona lisa's portrait yeah. <laughs> still oh. people are still trying to decode what it is listen angela natwani you've been amazing having us um having you with us today on where east meets west and we can definitely feel your gentle heart and gentle presence and the way you must be unfolding consistently in life in a very genuine and authentic way and that's definitely a blessing for our humanity now so thank you so so much for being with us are there any other final words or thoughts you'd like to share before we bid goodbye wow well, thank you to jenna for having me all i'm saying is humanity just needs a lot of compassion grace and gratitude at this point and gentle ways are the way <laughs> you know we don't need to yeah and let's work towards that unity and diversity i i just feel we need that thank you so much well that wraps up another segment of where east meets west i hope you've all enjoyed my conversation with anjana natwani who's doing a lot of beautiful beautiful things in the world and we didn't even touch on even half of it in today's conversation if you felt the energy today you could feel it was just really a heart to heart very open and genuine expression between two people sharing with them their stories and where east meets west is all about bridging the divide between the east and the west 
Hopefully today's conversation helped us to get a little bit closer to that division and becoming a one humanity. Drop us a direct message if you'd like on the epilogue or America Meditating Radio. And if you have any particular guests or questions that you might have or topics that you'd like us to cover, please send us an email. Email us at americameditating at gmail.com or at info at americameditating.org. I hope I didn't confuse you. Anyway, have a wonderful day and thanks again for joining us. Be well.